I was reflecting as I sat, probably as all of you were, um, on the, both on the instructions that I'd given for the meditation about uh, have as the uh, intention that the mind rest in uh, alert, compassionate attention. Uh, I remember the last part of the instruction was that it's not just to be there for this moment, to stay awake, know what's happening, but to be able to meet this moment uh, and uh, really in some, uh, in some immediate way to be healing moment to moment. Um, our minds, keeping them, uh, keeping them well, keeping them able to remember in the largest sense that life is extraordinary and that compassion is boundless. I was thinking of the story I told this morning, thank you, of um, of um, the story I told this morning of having come in and uh, really been thinking about the the uh, the news today uh, in the national scene of um, election results uh, or the news on the international scene of uh, uh, countries now closing their borders to migrants who in huge numbers are waiting in terrible conditions to be able to be taken in somewhere. And uh, the numbers of, of, of people waiting to be taken in somewhere in, in the middle of our own community, I heard yesterday on the radio a concern about uh, the numbers of homeless in San Francisco. They really don't need to go to Greece or uh, any other country to find people who haven't got anyone to take them in haven't got the means to take themselves in somewhere. And how I, I told about having passed Amara on the way out, and just enough to hear her say a snip of a conversation, life is good, everything's wonderful with me. And uh, I thought to myself, that's amazing. And in that moment, you feel your heart lift up. And in that moment, the veil of heaviness that's over it isn't there for a moment. It comes back as I sit down. I remember all the things I wanted to talk about today. And there are serious, serious problems in our backyards and in the world and uh, with people in our lives uh, uh, and painful things going on. And I think that uh, for myself, I felt reminded in a way uh, that I wanted to talk about, about that that's maybe the whole practice is to keep our mind clear enough to be able to remember that compassion is boundless and the ability to look at what's happening or know what's happening and really know it and respond to it in the way that we're programmed to do is really the only refuge. We can't go someplace and hide. People have been joking about, in terms of the election, they say, wake me when it's over. I'm gonna to go to some, some South Sea Island and live in a tent and not have any news or have any input of stuff until a year from now. And I think that the difference that came to me as I was sitting, that really I wanted to start by saying the difference between uh, equanimity and indifference. The difference between, uh, those are classically in Buddhist, in Buddhist uh, psychology, the equanimity is the state of the mind that really is able to see clearly what's happening and respond to it, stay fully present and warm-hearted, compassionate. I don't, I don't know that uh, compassion is the fruit of equanimity. It is equanimity. To be able to maintain a certain amount of equanimity in the midst of being confronted with really frightful things is a moment of compassion for oneself. It's not indifference to be able to say, that's what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. Not let's see what happens next, just so we'll see, but that we'll be able to then determine moment to moment, what can I do now? Um, how can I not, how can I still respond? If I can still respond, then I'm still alive. 
that I'm still, I am still a factor in the karma of the world. I thought about, I thought about it yesterday because I had a momentary thought about, oh, I wonder how these elections are going to go all over the place in Michigan or in Mississippi. Then I thought, oh, I hope it doesn't go this way. I hope it goes that way. And uh, maybe I could just go out for the whole day and do something else. And then tomorrow morning, I'll read about it. I'll skip it from now. All of which are difficult things. Maybe you notice that the news sources, maybe it doesn't happen for you, but there's a, a kind of a lure as you go by the television set says, you know, if you just turn me on now, you'll just find out what's happening now. And then it has all these alluring kind of things. In four hours and 53 minutes and 10 seconds, we're going to tell you who's ahead in Michigan. So, I mean, but what difference will it make when you know about it? They're probably already ahead in Michigan. And they, say, and they think, okay, I'm going to find out later what happened. But it already happened. Probably happened the day before or already happened. And it's a gratuitous flurry in the mind. When it's all over, the result will be the result. I didn't vote in any of those states. So I'm actually not even particularly connected to them. And what's my job now? Is it to stay tuned for the first results from such and such a state? I don't need them to keep, and, and they won't be very helpful in terms of keeping my mind at ease. If I think to myself, not at ease, because that's the wrong word. That, that begins to sound like passive. The world is doing what it's doing, and this nation is doing what it's doing, as a result of a whole world full of factors. And if it's going to change, it's going to change because of a whole world full of factors. And, and, and what each of us does is going to be one of those factors. So that the only work that I really can do, I mean, I, I'll ring doorbells when it comes down to the election and make phone calls and, and send support and do all those things and maybe write letters. But today, what can I do? And what can I do to remember that it's not the whole story? That um, <coughs> Let's take a minute to just to think about that, that uh, equanimity word. Uh, if you talk about uh, what's the point of mindfulness practice, a classical way to talk about it is to say that being alert and awake and open and poised with curiosity and with kind intent to meet this moment and respond to it in a way that doesn't cause suffering. And then you just universalize that, not this moment, but all moments to act in a way that doesn't cause suffering. I was thinking about the thing I read this morning in the paper about uh, complaining being contagious and uh, that it sours up the mood around you. Uh, uh, I, it's, it's been clear to me, probably to you, that uh, any one of the channels that is running on the juice of uh, uh, indignation, that if you're in another room, you don't know which channel it is because the tone of voice is the same. And the tone of voice is always one of tremendous indignation. Can you believe da da da, da. And it, 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 uh, it evokes in me a kind of agitated feeling. I think, wow. There was an, in, there was a, an interview with um, the CEO of one of the major networks. I actually remember which one, but I'm not gonna say. One of the major networks last week where somebody said, don't you feel responsible for the kind of not really journalism journalism that you're doing these days? Don't you feel that this isn't in the best tradition of journalism? And uh, don't you feel that you've actually created the situation that's currently playing itself out by giving it so much airtime? And this person said, you know, it's, that's not my problem. It really sells ads, you know. It keeps people's interest. And I think, wow, you know, that's, is it all right to say that? You know, that I'm doing this for the most crass reasons in the world. It increases my bottom line. So never mind the consequences of it. But here's a person who's the CEO of a major network saying, you know, this is what people want. I can't remember where the term bread and circus comes from. Does anybody remember? 
Anybody has their, their, wants a Google on their cell phone? It, it, huh? Can't get online here, okay. It used to be, a, it, it, it's some famous person like Cicero or Nero. Nero? I don't know, somebody. Maybe Nero. He said, what the people want, the people don't want the truth, they want bread and circuses. You know, they want to go to, this is, uh, they got it. This is a, we got it. it. This is like going to an ongoing uh, World Series. If you even listen to the, um, if you listen to the um, rhetoric, they don't say so-and-so won in this or that state. They say so-and-so thrashed the other person or trounced the other person or it was a knockout blow in such and such a thing. And, and honestly, I think that, that that temperament of bread and circus, you know, the, um, it, it makes it not real. And people find it, uh, if not even entertaining, compelling. Uh, and there'll be uh, the uh, psychologists who are debating this for a long time. The best thing I read this last week was a book by um, Paul Kalahiri. Is that how you say his last name? The man who wrote. Man Who Wrote From Breath to Air. Anybody read it? Nobody read it. I think it's number one on the nonfiction bestseller list. He, uh, he died. Uh, the author of this book died just a few, uh, somewhere maybe in the last year or so, uh, that it's taken to produce the book. He finished writing it just before he died. He was 36 years old. He was a neurosurgeon at um, Stanford. You can look him up, um, but you can also get it. Uh, you can look him up. He was a neurosurgeon at Stanford. He uh, was married. He was a brilliant surgeon, apparently, and had had all these years of postgraduate training and more training and more training, and now was uh, about to finish with his final, final training. Um, meantime, uh, had operating on many, many people and really saving many, many lives. Um, he had married. Uh, he was well married. And uh, in the course of his, and suddenly he lost a lot of weight and he suspected he had something. And he did have something. He had a cancer that wasn't treatable. And from the very beginning, his doctor said, you know, we don't know how long you're going to live. He said, you know, he, he recounts in his book saying to her, uh, you know, how much time have I got? And she said, you know, I'm not answering that. He wrote a whole article for uh, the New York Times, you can Google that, called How Much Time Have I Got? Uh, about, first of all, in medicine, you don't know how much time you've got. Uh, in life, you don't know how much time you've got. I sometimes think about that. Sometimes I think about it in terms of what if I knew that I had X amount of time, a certain amount of time. The sudden appreciation of today would be much different. And would I allow my mind to become uh, as um, seduced by um, dire scenarios about the planet if I knew I had a year? or a half a year, or two days, or five years. If I found out I had five years, would that, give, would that be a good idea to spend a year of it being aggravated about the planet? Planet's gonna do its thing, you know? I do the best I can, uh, but how much airtime do I wanna give to uh, despondency or despair? Anyway, so he gets sick and he asks his doctor, how long have I got? How much time have I got? And she said, I don't know. And uh, don't, be going, don't be looking it up in anything because you don't know either. Nobody knows. One of my friends, uh, one of my friend's husband uh, had melanoma, a malignant melanoma. He had an operation. It was gone for many, many years. And then he had a recurrence. And they treated it again and it went into remission. And then it came back. And then it came back and came back. And they ran through all the drugs. 
And then they told him, this is it. You know, we haven't got any more drugs. And uh, it was a local hospital. Uh, actually, it was Stanford. They said, we've run through all the drugs. And this is it. So uh, you really need to put your effects in order and all that. It's always an interesting thing to hear people say because I'm, I think we ought to have all our effects in order now because you don't know what's going to be. But anyway, so he does that and he uh, seamlessly leaves from his job. He retires early from his job and takes care of putting his things in order. And uh, the nature of that disease is you get weaker and weaker, you lose weight, but you don't feel terribly sick. So he's still managing to go around. And then he gets a call from Stanford and they say, we have this new gene therapy. So, and maybe, you know, since you're now on the, you're on your own and there's nothing left to do, do you want to try it? Okay, he'll try it. He goes and has his first treatment of gene therapy and he comes home. And he is so incredibly sick from the treatment. And you think he could have said, you know, I'm not going to bother my body anymore. He's incredibly, incredibly sick from the treatment. And he has to be hospitalized for the effects of the treatment. And then he gets over the effects of the treatment and his melanoma is gone. And it's now three or four years later and he's fine. Had to go back to work. So you don't know. You just don't know. Uh, so anyway, here's Paul Kalahiri and his doctor says, you know, maybe you'll go back to work. Maybe we'll get you better enough and you'll go back to work for a while. And he actually gets better enough and he goes back to work for a while. And then he, then he gets sick again. And ultimately he dies. And I think the reason why it's number one on the bestseller list is that it's the plainest, um, it's, it's the plainest description I've ever read of Someone said, what is that? I said, I read this great book. They said, what's the plot? I said, the plot is a neurosurgeon with a, 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 in a very happy situation in his life and in his mid-30s gets a diagnosis of uh, 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 a terminal cancer and he dies. That's the plot. And that's the whole plot. It doesn't, it, it, but there's something about the way he does it that's completely noble and not at all based on anything other than this is what's happening. It's not magical thinking that I'll get better or uh, it's just what it is. I read this and I thought he managed to say, I got sick, I was unhappy about it, you know, dismayed. He and his wife decide to have a baby after his diagnosis. And she becomes pregnant and has a baby that's less than a year old when he dies. And he writes this, this is the end of his book, this is the last paragraph of the book, which is dedicated to that baby. When you come to, well, maybe you want to hear the paragraph before it. Um, I'll read you the two paragraphs before it. This is, in a, this is a, such an equanimity thing. Uh, he's, first of all, he says, I went to my 15th reunion at Stanford a few months ago, and I was uh, standing on the, on, out on the patio and uh, drinking a whiskey and talking to old friends, and everyone was leaving, and people calling out, we'll see you on the 25th reunion. And he said it seemed rude to respond with, well, probably not. Uh, <coughs> Then he goes on to say, everyone succumbs to finitude. I suspect I am not the only one who preaches, reaches this pluperfect state. Most ambitions are either achieved or abandoned. Either way, they belong to the past. The future, instead of the latter toward the goals, the latter, latter toward the goals of life, flattens out into a perpetual present. Money, status, all the vanities the preacher of Ecclesiastics described, holds so little interest, a chasing after wind indeed. Yet one thing cannot be robbed of her futurity, our daughter Katie. I hope I'll live long enough that she has some memory of me. Words have a longevity I do not. I thought I could leave her a series of letters, but what would I say? I don't know what this girl will be like when she's 15. 
I don't even know if she'll like the nickname we've given her. There is perhaps only one thing to say to this infant, who is all future, overlapping briefly with me, whose life, barring the improbable, is all but past, and that message is simple. When you come to one of the many moments in life where you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you've been and done and meant to the world, do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with a sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. I was thinking about what's a sated joy. I'm thinking from, uh, isn't that beautiful, by the way? That's really beautiful. Um, by the way, the foreword for that book is written by Abraham Verghese, who also is a physician who also is on the faculty at Stanford, who writes in his, um, well, if you read the book, you'll read the prologue to it. A Sated Joy, where you don't want more or other. 20 years ago, I got a letter from um, Bill Cohen's wife. Um, Bill Cohen uh, died 20 years ago. Um, and some years later, I got a letter from his wife who said, my book club was reading It's Easier Than You Think. And there was Bill in the middle of the... I was writing 20 years ago more about... Uh, I, I was writing about what does it mean not to want it to be other, to say, when you've had enough, you say, thank you very much. I have everything I need. That's such an unusual statement for a human being. We could always have it a little bit different or a little bit more. Uh, someone sent me a birthday card years ago about, thank you very much. You know, the, the present would be to be in such a state that you could say, thank you very much. I have everything I need. Everything I need. The, uh, there's a, the first line of the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch are, it, are, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Don't need it to be different. I used to teach that by saying, when I, I, I used to joke about it. I'd say, well, if that's what really it, you have to have in order to succeed at this path of enlightenment or whatever it is, that I was never going to make it because I had so many preferences about it. I'd rather have this than that. And then I decided that actually it would be better if, if it were translated as the great way is not difficult for those who are not addicted to their preferences. Maybe it's better, and maybe that's what it means in the original. Maybe it's not really translated well. That, uh, you know, we, some of us uh, like chocolate better than vanilla, but if they're out of chocolate, we could have vanilla or not or nothing. But really, uh, if we're not grieved by not being able to have our preference. So he was the third patriarch of Zen, and I was learning, uh, and I wrote that... Um, says, it seemed to me, I couldn't relate to it, it seemed to me that preferences were what made life fun and exciting. My view was in direct contrast with the teaching of the Diamond Sutra, develop a mind that clings to naught. What I clearly did not understand was that it was possible and interesting and fun to have hopes and plans and pursue them with vigor and be prepared to let them go if they didn't work out. 
I learned that most dramatically from Bill, a friend of ours who uh, died some two decades before, and whom I have come to think of as the first patriarch of Berkeley. <laughs> Bill developed cancer while still a young man in his 40s. He had a wife, a flourishing career, children whom he loved a lot. When he knew he was, his death was approaching, he wrote a letter to all of his friends to be sent after his death. In it, he said about his life, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. I thought it would be marvelous to live my life that way, wanting more as a response to appreciating life, but never wanting other. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? This is fine. For many years, I don't even know where I am on this story that I'm about to tell you now, but uh, my friend Mary and I were leaving my house a long, long time ago when we used to teach courses together. This would have been 1980. We were going to teach uh, some psychology course together, and we had both been preparing the lessons together. And... Uh, at my kitchen table and we gathered up all our books. She said, it's time to go. So we gathered up all our books and I remember walking out of my house, making sure I had everything together. And I said, wait a minute, I don't think I have everything I need. And she looked at me and she said, sweetheart, you're never gonna have everything you need. <laughs> and, uh, and my friend Mary's a nun, so I thought it was a really, a, must be a deep spiritual, and I thought, well, she's right. You know, you could always have prepared a little bit more. You could always get another reference. You could always bring another book. But then over the years, I began to think, you have everything you need. Really. Um, we don't have everything we want, but we have everything we need. It's even a silly question. What do you need? Uh, I want to live longer. I want to be healthy. I either will or I won't. And if I need it, then I discover that I'm sick with something that's going to shorten my life right then. The job for me is going to be able to, is to do the, like this author or like Bill in Berkeley. Say, it isn't what I wanted, but uh, what I got. Or I never wanted other. I would have wanted more. I suppose I'll want more, but... Uh, I hope I won't grieve about not get, having more because that, to, the, to whatever degree I aggravated myself and anguished myself, it would make my situation worse. I imagine, because maybe that's why this book is so appealing. There's, there's not really any self-pity in it. You know, this is what's happening. I'm dying. Um, and there isn't a magic end, there isn't a magic cure, they don't suddenly discover a gene therapy, he does die. And he doesn't talk about coming back in another life, or think that he will. Who knows about that? It's been, uh, it's been part of a, the kind of cosmology that goes with Buddhism. And in some cases with, with other religions as well, with some segments of Judaism. Although people don't know that much. But that there's a, imagining that souls... Um, but all we know is this one. And, how do, and you know, I was thinking about, so how do you do that? And I, I suppose that the answer is you have to love life enough to want to not mess it up, or to want to really enjoy it. You have to have these moments. You know, um, I read this yesterday, and then we're going to talk to each other. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about is uh, the amazingness of human ingenuity. We have not figured out how to make people get along with each other on this planet. We haven't figured out how to get over our particular bounded needs. I heard this morning on one of the newscasts uh, that uh, 
I think Macedo Croatia or Macedonia is thinking of building a wall. And I thought to myself, this is such a bizarre thought. The whole world is going to have walls. You know how we've been looking at maps of the world and globes for years, and people have been saying, look at this. If you look at a map of the United States and every state is a different color from the sky and from an airplane, it doesn't look like everyone is a, a different color. You know, Nebraska is really the same, it's the same color as Kansas when you fly over it. But what if, well, you remember when people talked about we're not going to let any Syrian refugees into X or Y, whatever state that was? So, well, what are they going to build a wall around that state? No. And I thought to myself, well, how about if the whole world makes a, a wall? Uh, I've just, I'm in the middle of reading, uh, again, Midnight's Children. Do you remember <coughs> Salman Rushdie's book about. Um, the, the, the separation of India and Pakistan and the tremendous migration of people going where they wanted to go and the tremendous brutality of that. So you think about that and you think, well, is that, you know, is that what people are like? In, this is, a, uh, this is a, a, an alumni magazine from New York University Medical School and uh, it, it, it came in the mail from my husband yesterday. And he said, you need to take this to class and read it tomorrow. It's a great, this is a great Dharma story. So it's a great story. I, I'm trying to figure out the Dharma of it, so you tell me. Uh, but it's a, it's a story about a 26-hour operation that was carried out it, at, uh, uh, at NYU Hospital in New York recently uh, that had been prepared for over the course of a year that had more than 100 people. Here's a picture of all of the people who were involved in one way or another in planning for or doing the surgery or uh, caring for the person after the surgery. And what happened is a face, plant, a face transplant happened. A face transplant, a face and scalp transplant happened for a, a, a man whose name is uh, Patrick uh, Hardison. He's from Texas, and from a small town, and he was a volunteer fireman. And he ran into a, a burning building and, uh, to rescue some people, and he, he didn't get out safely. He, he got out, and his head and chest were already on fire, and he lived but tremendously disfigured. I, I guess I'll pass this, and if you want to look around, look at the pictures, you can. And um, uh, he couldn't smile. He had no face. He, he couldn't, uh, his eyes couldn't close. He couldn't make facial movements. Couldn't feed himself, but he was alive afterwards and, uh, and healthy in his body. He's 41 years old. He's a father of five children. And uh, in, at, at NYU is uh, the most eminent um, uh, person in plastic surgery and face transplants in the world. Um, I think it said he was a son of Cuban refugees. You know, we're, we're a country of refugees doing remarkable things. Anyway, Dr. Rodriguez and a team of 100 people planned for a year and they replaced his face and scalp and head and rebuilt his nose and his mouth opens and closes and he eats food and his eyes are, his eyelids, he has now has eyelids. And the number of transplants that had to happen to do this. And uh, the, the person whose face he has is, uh, uh, is that of a man who died when he was 26 years old in a uh, cycling accident who wanted to be a firefighter. So there's a, there's a, there's a just such a, and all of the people who, that, that operation took 26 hours. You think of what, what, what went on. There was so much involved. So I said, well, what's the Dharma of it? I said, it's a great story, but why should I tell it? He said, well, is it, but the Dharma, the Dharma. I said, so this morning I said, I still didn't get the Dharma, now I do. He said, you know, 
it's one of those things where you, you think about, are you amazed? I'm amazed. We haven't seen Susan for a long time. Susan Felix used to come all the time from Berkeley. Susan, uh, it's hard for her to drive from Berkeley so early in the morning, and her carpool isn't available anymore. But Susan signs all her letters, stay amazed, Susan. And when mine gets amazed, it goes from thinking, look what's going on, can you believe it, to think, look what's going on, can you believe it? We, we figured out how to do a face transplant. The, I, I watch my own mind because of its own uh, strings into cynicism. I won't tell you which of my parents, not my mother, uh, <laughs> had the string into cynicism. You know, that if they could figure that out, why couldn't they figure out how to stop the wars or the tortures or the this or the that? I, if the second part of the sentence is not necessary. What about, you can think about, look what people have done. It's amazing, and it lifts up the spirit. It's like I listen to Amara say, life is good. I say, oh yeah, look at that. It's amazing, life is good. Then if I think, uh, oh well here, uh, I get, I, you look around, get yourself a partner. Get a partner, everybody get a partner. Get a partner. You're a partner, everybody has a partner. At least one partner, there you go. There's Mark right behind you, you want Mark for a partner? Huh? Oh, no, no, you already had her for a partner. Okay, no. No, the, all right, what do you want to, you get a, you guys partner. Okay, there you go. Mark, you're back here, Mark. Here's your partner. Oh, she's back. Okay, so I, I'm not, I, I was going to tell you what was in my mind to say about my list of how do you, how do you keep your mind afloat? What, what picks it up? I already gave you a big hint. What it, I, could, I already gave you a big hint because I, you, you, see, you see something like this about this man in Texas and what happened. I think, wow. And on top of the wow that they did that, and if you read the article, it's totally amazing how they did that. But it's a, like extra, that wow, he wanted to be a firefighter. So maybe that, you know, and you know, it's just the way it, fell out. He might have wanted to be a math teacher or uh, something else, but he didn't. He wanted to be a firefighter. So there's something beautiful about that as well. So what makes your mind say, wow? And can you call that in to help you when your mind is wobbly? There's a very good uh, definition of wobbly mind that I'll tell you after we're back. So you have five minutes to do this with your partner. What picks up your mind when you are despondent? An activity or a thought or a something? Here is the hint.
First of all, first of all, <laughs> second of all, um, this is a process question. <clears throat> How do you feel now uh, uh, in, in, uh, in contrast to how you felt eight minutes ago before we started? Lighter, what else? Energized, connected, uplifted, uplifted. Smiling. smiling. I'm just watching everybody does this hand gesture, you know, like, you know, that, uh, what else? Smiling. Grateful. Hmm? Open. You know, hmm? You know, laughter. That, hmm? Connected. You know, there are, things, there are certain phrases, sometimes I think I'm going to make like a list, maybe between, there are like ten phrases that, uh, that if I could make, like the whole of Dharma teaching is in those ten phrases. In the last five minutes I was thinking of Thich Nhat Hanh saying, in our lifetime, the next Buddha is going to be the Sangha. And I really think so, you know, that, that, that what we're going to be is a community, larger and larger, I hope, of folks in and out of Buddhism who are dedicated to a peaceful world. At some point, if things are going to change, people are going to become converts to, uh, to some understanding of peace. There's a, I, well, anyway, I don't want to stop, but there was a very important article about why are so many people, Westerners, interested in Buddhism, and it was um, for interest in meditation, of course, but fundamentally people are looking for a path that says, this is what we're about, cultivating peace of mind on behalf of a peaceful world. What did you uh, learn from your sharing with your partner? Let's make like a big list. This is a master list of what picks up the mind. And you're just adding to the list, so you can shout out or what? What do you want to put on the list? Nature. Nature, 
being in or thinking about or... Yeah, or noticing it even. Yes. Noticing it. The act of noticing. The act of noticing. The act of experience, when, when Lynn and Joe and I were driving here, we do this every Wednesday. As we come by the last pasture, we look at the baby cows. If it, it fixes up your mind to look at the baby cows, doesn't it? And they're walking around like little cows after their mothers, you know? It really touches, even those of you who didn't see the baby cows who came the other way. When you get lifted up by the idea of a baby cow following its mother. What else? Taking a walk. Being around somebody who's uplifting. Being around someone who's uplifting. Power to choose our mood. The power to choose your mood. The fact that you can. I think about that's like the that's like such a um, that's such an insight, really, because mostly, at least I, before I began, in the days before I had even started, began to practice or heard about practice. I thought a bad mood comes at like a disease, and you are stuck with that mood. It comes to visit, and it stays until it leaves. You know, anger arises, and you think, ah, too bad I thought about that person, because now it has revved up that big fire of anger in my mind. I wish I hadn't thought of them. It's messed up my whole day. I wish it would go away. Without ever thinking, I could do something about it. I could now make another, I could get a fire extinguisher. I could sing a song. I could do something or other <laughs> that would do it. it uh, it's, it's a powerless way to say, you know, I, I can't do anything about this, uh, this head cold until it leaves. And that's not true. I actually could spend time lying down and resting, and that would be help. So just talk a little bit about some moods, you know, there are losses and there are grief, and it, we can't just pick it up. No, actually, you can't pick it up. I, I'm very glad that you, that you brought that up, Romani, because what you can do is have support in being in it. I have a, friend, a very good friend of mine in New York. This is the month for good friends of mine losing their elderly mothers. So Donald's mother died three weeks ago. My friend Jonathan's mother is going to die, if not today, tomorrow. But hospice is visiting, and her family is gathered around. And she's, she is remarkably, she's 93, I think, or 94, which is a, a, a very substantial age to have lived to and with your mental capacities, except she has three siblings older than her still living. She comes from tremendous longevity. So, so in fact, uh, Ruth is dying young in her family. And whether it's young or old, her children and her grandchildren, people who are around, are sad because she's just passing. And it's not a terrible thing, but it's, it's a shift. And, and, we, we, and I talk to him every day, and we just visit. And uh, we talk about what a strange period it is because you know it's going to happen. And you know that once it happens, you'll start the period of mourning and you'll do all the things that you do. And, make or do all the substantive things and the interior things but like you can't start doing that until it happens and it's not happening yet and so it's a strange place to sort of hang out it's kind of a uh, a bardo for the people who don't die if there are bardos and when i talk to him my my hope in talking to him every day is just to keep him company if i lived in his town i'd go and visit every day and hang out i think actually the one word that I'm hearing myself say more and more in terms of what are the spiritual practices that I do is the word accompanying mm -hmm. or companioning. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to come down to companioning each other. The whole hospice movement is based on companioning people in a, in a, in a skilled way so that you don't make this leave-taking more sad than it is. It's always sad to lose a person in the losing, in the moment. I don't know if that's always true, because when a person's in terrible pain, it's a relief, actually, that they leave. But it's certainly a different time, and it's not a time where you feel levity. You don't feel picked up. And you feel a little peculiar, actually. Um,
yeah, go ahead, Nancy. I just, I had actually just shared too. I, I'm the one that had the two sudden deaths this week of people that really mean a lot to me, and I found myself at one point wanting to back out of a social engagement just because I didn't feel like being around other people. And I said, well, I'm on that roller coaster, but then I realized the roller coaster wasn't going up. But part of it was that's okay. Like to not need it to go up, mm -hmm. um, and to so really deeply accepting and, and not in a contrived way, but feeling so grateful that I have a life where people matter enough to me that it mm -hmm. does kind of derail, not derail in a totally distressing way, but give me the capacity to go deep and mm -hmm. to connect and all that. So it's it's and so it's okay to feel sad. It's yeah. A sacred experience. Yeah, I think that that's the important line. We talk about it a lot. This is just a peculiar time. And when they pass, it's a peculiar time because they're no longer, there's like a hole in the wall, in the world where they used to be. You, know, you, can't, you can't touch them anymore after they're gone. And you can't actually hear their voice or feel their skin. Uh, they are, they're really gone. And, you get used, and it's hard to get used to that for a while. And it's, not, it's, it's, it's so clear to me that it's, everybody's on a different timetable. Um, what else did you talk about in your groups? Saving positive med um, memories and then using them in meditation and giving it away down. I think that's a wonderful thing. Can you give an example of it? Huh. That's, I, I'm very touched by that. Do you have somebody remind you, or do you have cards? or how do, What do you do functionally in the MRI machine? What do you do? There's so many things to say about that. That's like I think it's wise choice, so and it, and it, it really uh, once and for all clarifies that when people say mindfulness is the ability to be in the present moment fully, there are some present moments that you don't want to be in fully, like in an MRI machine. If you can take yourself to be scuba diving outside of Maui, that would be a much better place to be in your mind while you're there. The body is not going to get lost. What were, were the results of the MRI reassuring? Um, they don't tell you. They just give you the you know, CD and you give that to your doctor who will review it and then discuss it with you. Mm -hmm. So you haven't discussed yet? I have an appointment this afternoon. Wow. What's your name? Sylvia. Oh. <laughs> it's a very, do you like it? No, no, and Sylvia's are usually as old as I am. They haven't been. You know what, though? There's a whole crop of fresh Sylvia's coming up in the Latina community. There are a lot of beautiful little Latina girls named Sylvia, which, 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 if, uh, the, which, gets, which sounds like Sylvia. Uh, it's, it's very beautiful. It's softer. Ah, where were you born? Here, in, in California. Uh-huh. Of Latino parents? Yes, Mexican, and my first language was Spanish. Uh-huh. So uh, getting back to memories, bad memories are, are um, kindergarten. Everything was black. I could not speak or understand. Uh, wow. And now you have no, no trace of an accent in, in English. Just certain words. <laughs> but also I'm thinking that now, now that there's a more of an understanding filled in about 
why your name might not be so pleasant to you because it got changed. There are so many, there are so many things, aren't there, that go into how we feel about anything, you know, that that the the derivatives of whether we like names or not like names or like asparagus or not or, or like this color or not. There are so many derivatives to how we come up finally. That's amazing, too. Do you like your name? I do. I do. The only Sylvia I knew when I was growing up, were all, they were older than I. I was at the end of that Sylvia phase. But I, I actually never had a classmate named Sylvia. So I don't know. Maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, I don't know, but... I, no, I like it. What? Tell, tell me one more. Oh, it's 11. One more thing. Music. That, music. Music. How many people talked about music? I thought about, we talked about it on the way over in the car, about when, um, uh, one, of the th one of the things I think about when I uh, go to the symphony or any kind of a musical presentation, is if you multiply the number of people on stage by the numbers of hours of practice and the number of lessons taken and the number of auditions that were successful or not, uh, the number is so staggeringly high. And then people come in and play and go home. It's, you know, you think to yourself, it's amazing that in this complicated world, people can devote that much energy I think about it because many of you know my friend Barbara, who still practices many hours every day since she's eight years old and up to now. And uh, uh, I, when, I, when I go to the symphony and I watch her and all those other people, I think about the human quality of um, uh, intention uh, and uh, uh, dedication that it, it just seems to be so infinite, you know, that people, she's decided eight years old, that looks good, playing the cello sounds really good. I want to do that someday. And she is, you know, and very few people get to be able to do that, and she did. And it's not even my, my dedication that I'm celebrating, but it's human dedication. I think when I see things that humans can do, that is amazing. Did you see Race? Anybody saw Race? It's hardly in the theater anymore. Please try to see it. You know, uh, uh, you know, some of it is Hollywooded up a little bit, but it's the story of Jesse Owen running the uh, running in the 1936 Olympics, and you really do feel very moved by the dedication of everybody involved, not just him, but all of the athletes involved, and what his life was a part of in a larger life. So I was going to leave a lot of time to tell you all this, these announcements, and I didn't. So I will tell you that uh, not next week, but the week after. I will be here next week and the week after. And I said today we would have a review of the uh, Eightfold Path, and we didn't, but we will next week. And the review is going to turn out, probably get, won't get past wise intention, because I thought to myself today as we sat here that a long time ago, Yoshel Kempo said, everything hangs on the key of intention. And I thought, well, that's a nice thing to say. And today, as I was sitting here, I thought, everything hangs on the point of intention. Everything. I'm, you know, every decision, I'm not going to go there, I'm going to go here. I'm not going to go outside and play, I'm going to stay in here and practice my cello. So I'm, gonna not, I'm not going to simmer over this annoyance. I'm going to cultivate goodwill in my mind. Everything. Hangs on that. Two weeks from tomorrow, the 24th, I'm reminding you now, Aya Tataloka is going to be a guest at uh, the Thursday morning's women's group. So I'm sorry if you're not a woman because you can't be invited. 
but she's a she's one of the few Western bikunis in the Theravada tradition. And it's amazing to see a, a woman who early on, born in Washington, D.C. in 1968, decides to be a Buddhist monk and take robes and go and study for 10 years in Asia and then many years in other places and devote her whole life, and it, particularly in the Theravada tradition, where it's very, very hard to be ordained as a woman. It's not a tradition of ordaining women. And she did, and she's extraordinary. So please try to go to that. You're certainly welcome. Uh, and also, in, in April, on the 6th and the 13th, I think there are the two Wednesdays in April, there won't be a class here. I'm sorry about that. But uh, there are diversity trainings happening for the whole staff and the whole teacher council. And they're happening here those weeks, and there's nothing they can are able to do. We don't have room to be anyplace else. So in, in terms of your schedule going out into the future, those are two weeks that this class cannot meet. I'm sorry about that. But very soon after that, all things working out. Oh, I know, uh, June 18th, please write down in your calendar. On Sunday, June 18th, really, and the creek will rise, we'll have... Um, um, uh, uh, an opening of that new hall for those people who are in the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. I think we may invite other people not in the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. How many people here are in the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas? We'll see about making some arrangement for the people who are here on Wednesdays. Maybe that'll elevate them in status or something or other, because I'd like you to be there for the opening. Let me see what we can work about that. But don't say anything, because that might be... Don't say anything. I just said it to the whole Western world. Okay. Uh, God willing, in the creek don't rise, I'll see you next Wednesday. Take care of yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.